Hello world and welcome to Podcast in A Minor, where I bring you the weird little songs I write and the stories that go along with them. All December long, we'll be exploring all things Voisail, a magical world of old traditions. And now for today's opening song. Hello, world, and welcome to Podcast in A Minor. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and an artist, and it's Christmas Eve! Christmas Eve! So I thought I would throw out a bonus uh, episode. I have in front of me a book titled The Christmas Violin, a compendium of 50 classic Christmas carols, hymns, and wassail songs for solo violin. I'm not a violin player, but I do play a harp sometimes, and piano, and guitar, and I wanted to know about these wassailing songs that I might not have been familiar with in the past. Last year, when I was working on Wassail Wednesday, a little thing I cooked up for Instagram. So I want to read to you from it a couple of things. Firstly, a recipe for a Christmas punch from Mr. Charles Dickens. Enamel cast iron pot, six ounces of Demerara sugar cubes, 20 ounces of pirate juice Jamaican rum, six ounces of Corvoisier VSOP cognac, three lemons, a metal spoon, and one quart of boiling water to make three pints of punch. Peel into a very strong common basin, which may be broken in case of accident without damage to the owner's piece or pocket. The rinds of three lemons, cut very thin, and with as little as possible of the white coating between the peel and the fruit attached. Add a double handful of lump sugar, good measure, a pint of good old rum, and a large wine glass full of brandy. If it not be a large claret glass, say two. Set this on fire by filling a warm silver spoon with the spirit, lighting the contents at a wax taper, and pouring them gently in. Let it burn for three or four minutes at least, stirring it from time to time. Then extinguish it, by covering the basin with a tray, which will immediately put out the flame. Then squeeze in the juice of the three lemons and add a quart of boiling water. Stir the whole well, cover it up for five minutes, and stir again. At this crisis, having skimmed off the lemon pips with a spoon, you may taste. If not sweet enough, add sugar to your liking, but observe that it will be a little sweeter presently. Pour the whole into a jug, tie a leather or coarse cloth over the top so as to exclude the air completely, and stand it in a hot oven ten minutes, or on a hot stove one quarter of an hour. Keep it until it comes to table in a warm place near the fire, but not too hot. If it be intended to stand three or four hours, 
Take half the lemon peel out, or it will acquire a bitter taste. The same punch allowed to cool by degrees and then iced is delicious. It requires less sugar when made for this purpose. If you wish to produce it bright, strain it into bottles through silk. These proportions and directions will, of course, apply to any quantity. A recipe for Christmas punch. Much simpler recipe than the smoking bishop mentioned at the end of A Christmas Carol by Scrooge. And uh, that is an interesting point that will come up in our final episode of December. Now, because I love A Christmas Ghost Story, and I hope you do too, let us read On Christmas Ghost Stories, excerpted from The Christmas Tree, published in 1850 by Mr. Charles Dickens. Here is an intro. Ghost stories at Christmas can be traced back to pagan times, Yule and Saturnalia, when the winter solstice, like Halloween and a Walpurgis night, was viewed as a moment in space and time where the thinness of the boundaries between the supernatural and the human world became remarkably plastic, and all manner of strange things were said to be seen and heard in the winter air. While we no longer have the old stories spoken in the old homes around the old fires by the old myth keepers, let us sit around and enjoy some of the stories that would have sent shivers up the great-great-grandchildren of those little ones sitting around the Yule fire, the supernatural literature of the Victorians and Edwardians. What follows is Charles Dickens's description of a typical Christmas Eve ghost story session. If you are pleasantly spooked by his description, Old Style Tales has a fine collection of his best ghost stories. He wrote many more than A Christmas Carol. And another of, quote, the best Victorian ghost stories at www.oldstyletales.com. I did not know that. I am intrigued. Now on with On Christmas Ghost Stories by Mr. Charles Dickens. Sit back, grab your wassail, relax and listen. There is probably a smell of roasted chestnuts and other good comfortable things all the time, for we are telling winter stories, ghost stories, or more shame for us, round the Christmas fire, and we have never stirred, except to draw a little nearer to it. But no matter for that, we came to the house, and it is an old house, full of great chimneys, where wood is burnt on ancient dogs upon the hearth, and grim portraits, some of them with grim legends, too, lower distrustfully from the oaken panels of the walls. We are a middle-aged nobleman, and we make a generous supper with our host and hostess and their guests, it being Christmas time, and the old house full of company. And then we go to bed. Our room is a very old room. It is hung with tapestry. We don't like the portrait of a cavalier in green over the fireplace. There are great black beams in the ceiling, and there is a great black bedstead, supported at the foot by two great black figures, who seem to have come off of a couple of tombs in the old baronial church in the park for our particular accommodation. But we are not a superstitious nobleman, and we don't mind. Well, we dismiss our servants, lock the door, and sit before the fire in our dressing gown, musing about a great many things. At length we go to bed. Well, we can't sleep. We toss and tumble and can't sleep. The embers on the hearth burn fitfully and make the room look ghostly. We can't help peeping out over the counterpane at the two black figures and the cavalier, that wicked-looking cavalier in green. In the flickering light, they seem to advance and retire, which, though we are not by any means a superstitious nobleman, 
is not agreeable. Well, we get nervous, more and more nervous. We say, this is very foolish, but we can't stand this. We'll pretend to be ill and knock up somebody. Well, we are just going to do it when the locked door opens and there comes in a young woman, deadly pale and with long fair hair, who glides to the fire and sits down in the chair we have left there, wringing her hands. Then we notice that her clothes are wet. Our tongue cleaves to the roof of our mouth and we can't speak, but we observe her accurately. Her clothes are wet, her long hair is dabbled with moist mud, she is dressed in the fashion of two hundred years ago, and she has at her girdle a bunch of rusty keys. Well, there she sits, and we can't even faint we are in such a state about it. Presently she gets up and tries all the locks in the room with the rusty keys, which won't fit one of them. Then she fixes her eyes on the portrait of the cavalier in green and says, in a low, terrible voice, The stags know it. After that, she wrings her hands again, passes the bedside, and goes out at the door. We hurry on our dressing gown, seize our pistols, we always travel with pistols, and are following when we find the door locked. We turn the key, look out into the dark gallery, no one there. We wander away and try to find our servant. Can't be done. We pace the gallery till daybreak, then return to our deserted room, fall asleep, and are awakened by our servant, nothing ever haunts him, and the shining sun. Well, we make a wretched breakfast, and all the company say we look queer. After breakfast, we go over the house with our host, and then we take him to the portrait of the cavalier in green, and then it all comes out. He was false to a young housekeeper, once attached to that family, and famous for her beauty, who drowned herself in a pond, and whose body was discovered after a long time, because the stags refused to drink of the water. Since which, it has been whispered that she traverses the house at midnight, but goes especially to that room where the cavalier in green was wont to sleep, trying the old locks with the rusty keys. Well, we tell our host of what we have seen, and a shade comes over his features, and he begs it may be hushed up, and so it is. But it's all true, and we said so before we died. We are dead now, to many responsible people. There is no end to the old houses, with resounding galleries and dismal state bed chambers and haunted wings shut up for many years, through which we may ramble, with an agreeable creeping up our back, and encounter any number of ghosts, but it is worthy of remark, perhaps, reducible to a very few general types and classes, for ghosts have little originality and walk in a beaten track. Thus it comes to pass that a certain room in a certain old hall, where a certain bad lord, baronet, knight, or gentleman shot himself, has certain planks in the floor from which the blood will not be taken out. You may scrape and scrape, as the present owner has done, or plain and plain as his father did, or scrub and scrub as his grandfather did, or burn and burn with strong acids as his great-grandfather did, but there the blood will still be, no redder and no paler, no more and no less, always just the same. Thus, in such another house there is a haunted door that never will keep open, or another door that never will keep shut, or a haunted sound of a spinning wheel, or a hammer, or a footstep, or a cry, or a sigh, or a horse's tramp, or the rattling of a chain. Or else there is a turret clock, which at the midnight hour strikes thirteen, 
when the head of the family is going to die, or a shadowy, immovable black carriage, which at such a time is always seen by somebody waiting near the great gates in the stable yard. Or thus it came to pass how Lady Mary went to pay a visit at a large wild house in the Scottish Highlands, and being fatigued with her long journey, retired to bed early, and innocently said next morning at the breakfast table, "'How odd to have so late a party last night in this remote place, "'and not to tell me of it before I went to bed.' "'Then everyone asked Lady Mary what she meant. "'Then Lady Mary replied, "'Why, all night long the carriages were driving round and round the terrace underneath my window.' "'Then the owner of the house turned pale, and so did his lady, "'and Charles MacDoodle of MacDoodle signed to Lady Mary to say no more.' and everyone was silent. After breakfast, Charles MacDoodle told Lady Mary that it was a tradition in the family that those rumbling carriages on the terrace betokened death. And so it proved, for two months afterwards, the lady of the mansion died, and Lady Mary, who was a maid of honor at court, often told this story to the old Queen Charlotte, by this token that the old king always said, Eh? Eh? What? What? Ghosts? Ghosts? No such thing. No such thing and never left off saying so until he went to bed. Or a friend of somebody's, whom most of us know, when he was a young man at college, had a particular friend, with whom he made the compact that, if it were possible for the spirit to return to this earth after its separation from the body, he of the twain who first died should reappear to the other. In course of time, this compact was forgotten by our friend, the two young men having progressed in life and taking diverging paths that were wide asunder. But one night, many years afterwards, our friend being in the north of England and staying for the night in an inn on the Yorkshire Moors, happened to look out of bed, and there in the moonlight, leaning on a bureau near the window, steadfastly regarding him, saw his old college friend. The appearance being solemn, solemnly addressed, replied in a kind of whisper, but very audibly, Do not come near me. I am dead. I am here to redeem my promise. I come from another world, but, na but may not disclose its secrets. Then the whole form, becoming paler, melted, as it were, into the moonlight, and faded away. Or there was the daughter of the first occupier of the picturesque Elizabethan house, so famous in our neighborhood. You have heard about her? No. Why, she went out one summer evening at twilight, when she was a beautiful girl, just seventeen years of age, to gather flowers in the garden, and presently came running, terrified, into the hall to her father, saying, Oh, dear father, I've met myself. He took her in his arms and told her it was fancy, but she said, Oh, no, I met myself on the broad walk, and I was pale and gathering withered flowers, and I turned my head and held them up. And that night she died, and a picture of her story was begun, though never finished, and they say it is somewhere in the house to this day, with its face to the wall. Or the uncle of my brother's wife was riding home on horseback one mellow evening at sunset, when, in a green lane close to his own house, he saw a man standing before him in the very center of a narrow way. Why does that man in the cloak stand there, he thought? Does he want me to ride over him? but the figure never moved. He felt a strange sensation, seeing it so still, but slackened his trot and rode forward. When he was so close to it as almost to touch it with his stirrup, his horse shied, and the figure glided up the bank in a curious, unearthly manner, 
backward and without seeming to use his feet, and was gone. The uncle of my brother's wife, exclaiming, Good heaven, it is my cousin Harry from Bombay, put spurs to his horse, which was suddenly in a profuse sweat, and wondering at such strange behavior, dashed round to the front of the house. There he saw the same figure just passing in at the long French window of the drawing room, opening on the ground. He threw his bridle to a servant and hastened in after it. His sister was sitting there alone. Alice, where's my cousin Harry? Your cousin Harry, John? Yes, from Bombay. I met him in the lane just now and saw him enter here this instant. Not a creature had been seen by anyone, and in that hour and minute, as it afterward appeared, this cousin died in India. Or it was a certain sensible old maiden lady who died at ninety-nine and retained her faculties to the last who really did see the orphan boy, a story which has often been incorrectly told, but of which the real truth is this, because it is, in fact, a story belonging to our family. And she was a connection of our family. When she was about forty years of age, and still an uncommonly fine woman, her lover died young, which was the reason why she never married, though she had many offers. She went to stay at a place in Kent, which her brother, an Indian merchant, had newly bought. There was a story that this place had once been held in trust by the guardian of a young boy, who was himself the next heir, and who killed the young boy by harsh and cruel treatment. She knew nothing of that. It has been said that there was a cage in her bedroom in which the guardian used to put the boy. There was no such thing. There was only a closet. She went to bed, made no alarm, whatever, in the night, and in the morning said composedly to her maid when she came in, Who is the pretty, forlorn-looking child who has been peeping out of that closet all night? The maid replied by giving a loud scream and instantly decamping. She was surprised, but she was a woman of remarkable strength of mind, and she dressed herself and went downstairs and closeted herself with her brother. Now, Walter, she said, I have been disturbed all night by a pretty forlorn-looking boy who has been constantly peeping out of that closet in my room, which I can't open. This is some trick. I'm afraid not, Charlotte, said he, for it is the legend of the house. It is the orphan boy. What did he do? He opened the door softly, said she, and peeped out. Sometimes he came a step or two into the room. Then I called to him to encourage him, and he shrunk and shuddered and crept in again and shut the door. The closet has no communication, Charlotte, said her brother, with any other part of the house, and it's nailed up. This was undeniably true, and it took two carpenters a whole forenoon to get it open for examination. Then she was satisfied that she had seen the orphan boy, but the wild and terrible part of the story is that he was also seen by three of her brother's sons in succession, who all died young. On the occasion of each child being taken ill, he came home in a heat twelve hours before and said, Oh, Mama, he had been playing under a particular oak tree in a certain meadow with a strange boy, a pretty, forlorn-looking boy, who was very timid and made signs. From fatal experience, the parents came to know that this was the orphan boy, and that the course of that child, whom he chose for his little playmate, was surely run. Legion is the name of the German castles, where we sit up alone and wait for the specter, where we are shown into a room, made comparatively cheerful with our reception, 
where we glance around at the shadows thrown on the blank walls by the crackling fire, where we feel very lonely when the village innkeeper and his pretty daughter have retired after laying down a fresh store of wood upon the hearth and setting forth the small table, such supper cheer as a cold roast capon, bread, grapes, and a flask of old Rhine wine, where the reverberating doors close on their retreat, one after another, like so many peals of sullen thunder, and where, about the small hours of the night, we come into the knowledge of diverse supernatural mysteries. Legion is the name of the haunted German students, in whose society we draw yet nearer to the fire, while the schoolboy in the corner opens his eyes wide and round, and flies off the footstool he has chosen for his seat, when the door accidentally blows open. Fast is the crop of such fruit, shining on our Christmas tree, in blossom, almost at the very top, ripening all down the boughs. And that was the excerpt from A Christmas Tree by Charles, D- or The Christmas Tree by Mr. Charles Dickens. And that was in The Christmas Violin, a compendium of 50 classic Christmas carols, hymns, and wassail songs for solo violin. As you see, it also contains some recipes and stories. There's also one by Washington Irving, and probably others. It's been a while since I looked through the whole thing. And now, I'll wrap it up with one final thing. A reading of Christmas Meeting by Rosemary Timperley in its entirety. This is a short story that I discussed in the last episode, Christmas Alone, Wassail. And here, I will read it for you. Christmas Meeting by Rosemary Timperley. I have never spent Christmas alone before. It gives me an uncanny feeling, sitting alone in my furnished room, with my head full of ghosts, and the room full of voices of the past. It's a drowning feeling, all the Christmases of the past coming back in a mad jumble, the childish Christmas with a house full of relations, a tree in the window, sixpences in the pudding, and the delicious crinkly stocking in the dark morning. The adolescent Christmas with mother and father, the war and the bitter cold, and the letters from abroad, the first really grown-up Christmas with a lover, the snow and the enchantment, red wine and kisses, and the walk in the dark before midnight, with the grounds so white, and the stars diamond bright in a black sky, so many Christmases through the years, and now the first Christmas alone. But not quite loneliness, a feeling of companionship with all the other people who are spending Christmas alone, millions of them, past and present, a feeling that If I close my eyes, there will be no past or future, only an endless present, which is time, because it is all we ever have. Yes, however cynical you are, however irreligious, it makes you feel queer to be alone at Christmas time. So I am absurdly relieved when the young man walks in. There's nothing romantic about it. I'm a woman of nearly fifty, a spinster school ma'am with grim dark hair and myopic eyes that were once beautiful, and he's a kid of twenty rather unconventionally dressed with a flowing wine-colored tie and black velvet jacket and brown curls, which could do with the taste of the barber's scissors. The effeminacy of his dress is belied by his features, narrow, piercing blue eyes and arrogant, jutting nose and chin. Not that he looks strong. The skin is fine drawn over the prominent features, and he is very white. He bursts in without knocking, then pauses, says, I'm so sorry, I thought this was my room. He begins to go out, then hesitates, and says, Are you alone? Yes. It's queer being alone at Christmas, isn't it? May I stay and talk? I'd be glad if you would. 
He comes right in and sits down by the fire. I hope you don't think I came in here on purpose. I really did think it was my room, he explains. I'm glad you made the mistake, but you're a very young person to be alone at Christmas time. I wouldn't go back to the country with my family. It would hold up my work. I'm a writer. I see. I can't help smiling a little. That explains his rather unusual dress. And he takes himself so seriously, this young man. Of course, you mustn't waste a precious moment of writing, I say with a twinkle. No, not a moment. That's what my family won't see. They don't appreciate urgency. Families are never appreciative of the artistic nature. No, they aren't, he agrees seriously. What are you writing? Poetry and a diary combined. It's called My Poems and I by Francis Randell. That's my name. My family says there's no point in my writing because I'm too young. But I don't feel young. Sometimes I feel like an old man with too much to do before he dies. Revolving faster and faster on the wheel of creativeness. Yes, yes, exactly. You understand. You must read my work sometime. Please read my work. Read my work. A note of desperation in his voice, a look of fear in his eyes, makes me say, We're both getting much too solemn for Christmas Day. I'm going to make you some coffee, and I have a plum cake. I move about, clattering cups, spooning coffee into my percolator. But I must have offended him, for when I look round, I find he has left me. I am absurdly disappointed. I finish making coffee, however, then turn to the bookshelf in the room. It is piled high with volumes, for which the landlady has apologized profusely. Hope you don't mind the books, miss, but my husband won't part with them, and there's nowhere else to put them. We charge a bit less for the room for that reason. I don't mind, I said. Books are good friends. But these aren't very friendly-looking books. I take one at random. Or does some strange fate guide my hand? Sipping my coffee, inhaling my cigarette smoke, I begin to read the battered little book, published, I see, in spring, 1852. It's mainly poetry, immature stuff, but vivid. Then there's a kind of diary, more realistic, less affected. Out of curiosity, to see if there are any amusing comparisons, I turn to the entry for Christmas Day, 1851. I read, My first Christmas Day alone. I had rather an odd experience. When I went back to my lodgings after a walk, there was a middle-aged woman in my room. I thought at first I'd walked into the wrong room, but this was not so. And later, after a pleasant talk, she disappeared. I suppose she was a ghost, but I wasn't frightened. I liked her. But I do not feel well tonight. Not at all well. I have never felt ill at Christmas before. A publisher's note followed the last entry. Francis Randell died from a sudden heart attack on the night of Christmas Day, 1851. The woman mentioned in this final entry in his diary was the last person to see him alive. In spite of requests for her to come forward, she never did so. Her identity remains a mystery. And that is the end of Christmas Meeting by Rosemary Temperley. Thank you for joining me for this Christmas Eve bonus. I hope you enjoyed the readings by those wonderful authors, Charles Dickens, Rosemary Timperley, and the Christmas Punch Recipe. And I hope that you are having a wonderful celebration of whatever you may celebrate. Podcast in A Minor will be back on Wednesday with a final Wassail Wednesday December episode, after which I may take a small break to gather myself for the new year. See you next time.
Masta, Masta, the Encyclopedia Neurotica. It's my rule in the play.